This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Welcome to Controller's podcast on the African mining in Dublin that was held in Cape Town, South Africa from the 5th to the 8th of February. I'm Wayne Melchus, a partner in the Johannesburg office of Controller's. And joining me on the panel are two of my colleagues who also attended the mining in Dubba, John Greenaway, Principal Markets and Partnerships, part in Australia, and Basolo Roger, Director, Global Risk Analysis, and based in London. A warm welcome, gentlemen. To jump right into the questions, and this is starting with you. This year's theme for the mining in Dubba was embracing the power of positive disruption. Uh, a bold new future for African mining. Was the INDAB able to give expression to this theme, having attended all three days? Thanks, Wayne. And, and yeah, it was really good to spend the week with uh, with you at INDAB once again. Look, I think, you know, it was a, a very busy event, as it always tends to be. I think there were always around seven to 8,000 attendees, representatives from about 20, 25 governments attending. And I think, you know, this year, as we've seen in the previous years, really, trying to give flesh to the optimism, the excitement of Africa's critical minerals potential. And I think once again, critical minerals were front and center of Indaba, a lot of presentations from governments, companies uh, touting you know, the, the huge potential that Africa has from its critical minerals endowments, about 60% of global mineral reserves. I think we know when, when we look at the bold future, now the challenge is, is that potential going to materialize? And I'm sure we'll We'll talk a little bit more about this you know, in, in this podcast. There are some reasons to be optimistic, but I think there's also some facts that make us a little bit skeptical sometimes about whether the potential will be fully realized because of the challenges of getting the minerals off the ground. Absolutely. Thanks very much. So, uh, yes, indeed, it's, it's an important question, critical minerals, and we'll explore that a little bit later on in the podcast. John, you traveled all the way from Australia, and uh, this was your first in Darbo. It was my first in Darbo. And it was, a, it was a great experience, a lot of energy. Um, I've been to similar conferences, Africa Down Under in Perth, but this is much bigger and, and much broader. So that was great to see. And I think those who are more experienced in Darba than myself were saying that there was a, a lot of energy in the room as compared to, you know, pre-pandemic, well, at least coming out of the pandemic and when it wasn't on and the years just following when there was some slightly less number of attendees. But as Vincent said, you know, the aspirations were great. The government delegations were talking up a really big game about what great destinations they are for investment. And of course, the miners were always there spruiking their plans. So taking them on face value, and there are a lot of good plans there. It's great to see in here. But yeah, the question is, what's the proof of the pudding? There are a few challenges there to get to the goals of positive disruption, I guess, just to refer back to the theme. Thanks, John. Thanks, Vincent. Um, and moving to the sub-themes of the DABA, you mentioned government delegations saying that they're open for business. John, while you have the floor, if you could just expand a little bit about the main themes, the dominant themes that for positive disruption that you sensed or got to detect in the in DABA. I guess one of the interesting things uh, I think is that everyone's got the plans. We've heard all about the transformation, uh, the energy transformation and the critical role of battery minerals from Africa. But there is a slight sense of a of certain amount of limbo at the moment. There's clearly depressed prices in the market for a lot of battery minerals. And there are the traditional challenges that you have around political risk, policy instability, 
you know, and security issues across the continent and some parts of the continent. But I think also there's a lack of infrastructure as well to realise and enable the development of, of some of these projects. So all of those challenges are there. Some are new, some are not so new. And in this environment where we've got all sorts of geopolitical issues around the world, and we'll get to that a little bit later, I guess, accessing financing is not easy. So one of the things that I noticed a lot was um, there is an even greater enthusiasm amongst operators and proponents of mining projects to speak to anybody there that had money. So that's clearly one of the, one of the big issues of the current day, and, and I don't think I'm surprising anyone with that observation. There's still a strong long-term view about the opportunities here and uh, the critical mineral story and the transformation, and I think that's going to prevail. And I think this year will be a, a testing period for a number of initiatives. For example, you know, some investment from the United States, the EU and multilaterals, and access to things such as the Inflation Reduction Act and, and the EU initiatives around the critical mineral space. There's some of the things. I think there's obviously some challenges out there, but there's still overwhelmingly, you know, a positive view that, you know, some of these bigger projects can get there. I think one of the positive stories that, that I heard about was the Libido project, the rail project, which will link the um, Zambian copper belt to Angola, to existing tracks in Angola. And that's, there's a memorandum of understanding amongst the regional countries there that are involved and, and also the, the US and EU. So that's a good story to tell. And if that does realise itself, I think it's a five-year time frame for that. You know, that's the sort of thing that can help transform the continent. Fantastic. And so your impressions in terms of the sub-themes um, from the double? Yeah, I think from my end, I think John has discovered one that was very present. Maybe another one that stood out for me this year was exploration and a focus on the part of governments to try to encourage more exploration. Because it's all good to talk about the endowments, you know, the potential reserves. But I think uh, an obstacle to that potential being realized at the moment is Africa attracts way too little exploration spending. Um, I think we're under 10% of global exploration spending. And so if you fast forward 10 years, logically, then we will have under 10% of production uh, if the trend continues. And so we've seen various announcements on the part of South Africa, for example, of having a critical minerals or junior minerals exploration fund to try to incentivize exploration. Uh, we saw a few governments also announcing campaigns to improve their geological infrastructure, mapping surveys, etc. For example, the government of Cote d'Ivoire announced that they're planning a campaign to improve um, availability of data. So there is efforts there to try to bring junior companies onto these countries and, and try and attract funding. Thanks very much for that. John, coming back to you, I would just like to talk about resource nationalism. What is this all about and what drives the phenomena of resource nationalization? It's one of the topics, obviously, of under discussion, not just in Darba, but just generally at the moment. And I think we're seeing across Africa governments seeking a greater take from the mining sector in terms of taxes and royalties. They're asking for more local content and they're implementing measures such as the banning of export of you know, unprocessed raw minerals. They want local beneficiation there. And miners are saying that this is threatening the viability of projects. You know, we've seen also existing operations being suspended when governments are revisiting contracts seeking to get a greater take from profits there. So this sort of creeping resource nationalism is happening across the continent and the drivers there are really around the public finances of, of many governments being under pressure, you know, high debt levels and weaker buying power uh, as a result of depreciated currencies. And those pressures are not going to go away. So this is something that's going to have to be dealt with you know, in the coming years. Um, support from major economies and the multilaterals, both directly in projects uh, that are being discussed, 
but also indirectly shoring up public finances will go some way, I think, to dampening the causal factors for, for this, but it won't go away completely. So I guess that's why, you know, and, and I think Vansan will support this. We're stressing to our clients the need to monitor key government stakeholders and policy development and supporting the engagement strategies to help manage these effects. Can you also comment on how the mining houses have and are they acting to this resource nationalism? Yeah, I think, you know, just to, to build on what, what John said, the, the forms, I think, of the resource nationalism is, is mutating. Uh, and we heard, you know, a greater focus, I think, this year on local value addition. I think that was probably the, the key part of the a more nationalist message. The Minister of Mines of Ghana expressed it a few times at different panels saying the colonial model of date and ship is over. And I think this is the first time that we heard this comments expressed very consistently across different countries. Um, and it's, it's kind of trickling down to, to policy measures increasingly. Just over the last year, we've had the renegotiation of a deal between the Beers and Botswana, uh, which was touted as a victory uh, on the part of the Botswana government. And that has inspired others to also look at some of the agreements uh, and I think to stress one thing that we didn't see so much in the last few years, but which is the return of the state as a marketer of some of mining products. So both DRC and Zambia, for example, have uh, made clear that going forward, they expect that they were not only going to get dividends from their share in mining joint ventures, but they're also going to be involved in marketing the output themselves uh, to kind of rebuild these functions, which I think have, have kind of lost capacity over, over the previous decade. So there's a real shift here, which makes it a little bit more complicated for companies and I think raises a few questions about off-take agreements that have been signed with the private sector, but just more generally the consistency of agreements and, and the viability of these agreements. So there is a, a point of tension you know, on the part of governments. There's a clear, it's Africa's time. We're there, you know, we have this huge potential uh, and we shouldn't let this pass. And as John said, there's huge pressure on finances to try and, and bring new sources of, of income. At the same time, some of these projects also face a tough cost environment uh, with global inflation and adverse financing environments. And so it's, it's always a balancing act. And, and there, there was sometimes a bit of a fear on, on the part of private sector that that balancing act is was being pushed a little bit too far uh, on the part of some governments. No, thanks. Now, we also heard that government delegations being very positive about mining in their countries um, during the Indalba. Um, so on the one hand, they're saying we are hoping for business and they want to attract mining houses. On the other hand, they also want to create a stake and share in the benefits that flow from that. Are the two compatible, John, both yourselves and myself? I think they are, but it obviously has to be a growing pie. I think I think Africa has the potential. You know, you, you hear the talk, everyone talks about how good the geology is in Africa. So that's important. There are some really world-class deposits in Africa that shouldn't be forgotten. But the geology, you know, is not everything. You know, if you look, for example, at the Simindu project in Guinea, that's a, a you know, a quality, quality uh, deposit. But what that is effectively in our, as a, is a rail and port project. It's not a mining project. Massive massive project there building the the rail and port that's going on there so you know that sums up the kind of challenges that i referred to before about the infrastructure that needs to be developed and you can't get there without the support of a very large company like rio tinto or government support internationally so that's that's something that needs to happen so i think i think those sorts of those sorts of blockages and issues they'll have to be solved for these grant plans to be realized i think that's one area where you know, we'd like to see, or I'd like to see some focus over the coming years.
Ashan, this one, is Africa open for business? <laughs> As ever, you know, this is a, a comment we hear at pretty much every single panel. Um, and we all know that, you know, there are nuances, there are variations between countries. I think, you know, this year, some countries stood out particularly well. And when talking across the, the corridors, you know, attracted a lot of, of praise for first quality of their presentation. They put at in Baba, but obviously also just the, the work that's being done in the background to improve the business environment. Uh, I think Zambia probably stands out in that respect. And, you know, we've seen since the arrival of Inchilema to power in 2021, we've seen real efforts to make the business environment more predictable for business. The mines minister, Volker Buswe, was you know, quite eloquent on that front when he said, you know, the era of changing jackets every day is over. Um, and I think that was well received by the, the private sector. And we've already seen, you know, the results of that in the sense of, of $8 billion of investment going into the mining sector and a bold vision by the Zambian government to push copper production to 3 million tons a year by 2030. Côte d'Ivoire also came out particularly well. And you know, their relative position in West Africa has improved because we've seen difficulties in the Sahel um, and they have an endowment of minerals that includes gold, which has been their kind of traditional commodity, but also looking at other commodities such as lithium. They're again a well-attended presentation in a sense that dialogue between government and industry is working relatively well. And I think the third one I would like is probably Angola, which is increasingly making the mining uh, the kind of second pillar of their economy behind uh, oil and gas. And where, again, we saw interesting announcements on new deals uh, and generally a, a lot of excitement in the room for Angola. So you've attended previous mining endowments and during previous endowments, the NGO community, civil society, they were very active in terms of the responsibility of mining houses to local communities. Did you detect the same level of activity as previous years from the NGO sector to promote local community concerns during this Indaba? Yes, I think what we've seen perhaps over the previous years is almost a kind of a mainstreaming of, of that side of the agenda into the main program event. So I think there's a lot more room now within Indaba for discussions on sustainability, on social performance, and it's not just about corporate affairs and finding money for the next project. There's a real debate also about what are the best practices, what are the best standards, and, and how to implement on the ground these standards when it comes to issues such as human rights, local community impacts, resettlement. Um, so those are increasingly discussed as part of the, as part of the main events. John, coming to you, if you look at panel discussions on ESG, is there a better understanding by participants of the responsibilities in terms of ESG? I think there is better than there has been in the past. It's still a challenge. You know, a lot of these projects have environmental consequences. They use a lot of water. Um, you have these sorts of concerns, and that's going to create issues for local communities. One would hope, uh, it's not always the case, but one would hope that the mining community is better in 2024 at handling those sorts of concerns and with local community projects and delivering value to the local community, not just in terms of jobs, but also in the overall quality of life. So, so I think that's not going to go away. There were some other interesting discussions I listened to around, you know, ESG standards um, and, you know, everyone's hoping for a unification of the standards that companies need to report to and respond to. Um, because some of them are across purposes. So that was some interesting discussions that I was present at. So I think from the top down, there has been a development of so many standards around the SDGs, around Gatsby and others, 
And then at, at the local level, community issues are, are well represented by the NGO community. So miners need to respond um, both upwards and where they're working to make sure that they maintain their social license to operate. And I think there's, there's been a tremendous amount of work at, at headquarter level on the part of some of the, the majors to develop, you know, really robust social performance programs, human rights program. And we've worked with a few of the companies in developing those. And, and the challenge is always, you know, the implementation at asset level and finding the right balance between implementing those standards while leaving the flexibility to deal with the, the specificities of the local context that different mine sites, you know, be it in Latin America or Southern Africa or West Africa. And we hear there is, you know, there is still a point of tension about this between, you know, kind of headquarters kind of trying to communicate, pass down these expectations to assets who have sometimes been operated in a very decentralized fashion. Thank you, Mr. Last question from my side. You did mention critical minerals previously, early in the podcast, and the name says it all. But the one thing that links up to the previous question, what I'm going to ask is, is critical minerals, again, one of those phenomena of the resource curse that we've seen in oil and gas in African countries, massive deposits, and very little flows to the host countries? Are they at risk of following the same path of just no benefits flowing to those countries. So that's a question for both of you. John, you want to go first? Well, I think you find that many governments will have that in the back of their mind in terms of how they deal with the mining industry. They don't want to have happen now with this latest opportunity and this latest great surge in investment as what has happened in the past. And I think, you know, for most investors and most operators, they are genuine about making sure that the benefits flow down to their host communities. But with the best intentions, you know, things can still go awry. So, you know, the, the, one of the interesting discussions I recall having with some other attendees was, a, was around the opportunities to make sure that, you know, there is a great demographic in Africa of, you know, within that working age, which you don't have in other parts of the world. You know, it's a young, vibrant, you know, working age population. They need to be trained and they need to develop the skills so they can enable this transition and in turn benefit from it. So I think there has to be a, a, you know, a comprehensive approach by government and by industry to make sure that Africa benefits from you know, the critical mineral transformation. I think it can, but it's not going to be done without considered plans and implementation. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Vincent, a few comments from your side? Yeah, I, mean, I think there is always a risk of resource curse when you have commodities that experience a, a boom. And I think adding potentially to the risk in this case is, you know, the, the makeup of the critical minerals that will evolve, you know, what makes the critical minerals for the energy transition might not look the same in 10 years' time. We know that, you know, there's different battery chemistry models that are making progress kind of side by side and eventually the technology might land on one of them and that will have huge implications for the commodities that are you know in global demand down the line and so there is a risk on the part of some governments if they put all their eggs into the same baskets of commodities that some of them may actually you know have a, a short boom in the coming decade but actually will not be sustainable and, and a lot of the investment that has gone into this will not necessarily pay off i think that's potentially the the greatest risk. There's a sense that, you know, copper is probably the one that's the most immune to these different technologies because there will be a need for copper regardless. Um, and that's probably puts the, the main copper producer in the, in the stronger or the most resilient position. But when it comes to lithium, manganese, nickel, 
I think there is still a bit of uncertainty about which one will emerge going forward. Generally, the other topic, you know, is, is just about governance and the management of the windfall that will come from these resources. And I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that we're seeing a lot of initiatives, both from downstream consumers, whether it's car makers, battery producers or the governments that will be trying to secure these supplies, but also on the part of African governments to set stronger standards of governance, stronger standards of ESG um, for the exploitation of these minerals. And the Mineral Security Partnership, which is an initiative by the G7 to secure supply of mineral, has a very strong pillar on responsible sourcing. Um, so there's these kinds of initiatives that make us hopeful that there is going to be a greater emphasis on the sound, sustainable, uh, well-governed exploitation of these minerals. But we know there's still a risk in countries that have either high corruption issues or just the poor quality of, of governance will always be in a greater risk of falling prey to the, to the resource crisis. Yeah. Thank you very much, John, Vincent. Thanks for your insightful comments. We certainly hope to see you back at uh, Mane in Darba, Africa Mining in Darba 2025. Thank you very much for your inputs. For those who are interested in exploring critical minerals a bit further, because it's a fairly involved and complex topic, please do visit our website where we have material on and commentary by our analysts on critical minerals. The website is www.controlrisks.com. Thank you very much for your time. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.